This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. In a very much anticipated decision, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of a baker that chose not to make a wedding cake for a gay couple. The baker, John Phillips, told the couple, David Mullins and Charlie Craig, that he would not create the cake because of his religious beliefs against gay marriage. The case was first taken before the Civil Rights Commission in Colorado, who ruled in favor of the couple, saying that Phillips violated their rights. But the Supreme Court, as we mentioned in a 7-2 ruling, said that the commission was hostile to the idea of religion due to comments of one of its members. In that commentary, Justice Anthony Kennedy also said that he is very much supportive of gay rights as well. Joining us to discuss the ruling, Tobias Barrington-Wolf, law professor here at the University of Pennsylvania, and also joining us, Amy Seppin-Wallace, assistant professor of legal studies and business ethics here at Wharton as well. Tobias, Amy, great to have you both back with us. Thank you both. Wonderful. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. Uh, Tobias, we'll start with you. Uh, your reaction to the ruling by the Supreme Court and how you see this, not only with this case, but potentially impacting other situations down the road. So the, the Supreme Court, in most respects, wound up not deciding the broadest issues that were presented in this case. They didn't uh, speak to the free speech claim that the Bakers had made, which was basically that because they sell goods and services that have some creative or artistic skill involved with them, that they have a First Amendment right to turn away whatever customers they want to. The Supreme Court did not rule on that issue. And it also didn't rule on the broadest version of their religion claim, which was that because they have religious objections to the idea of gay couples getting married, that they simply have a categorical right to turn those customers away from their business. They didn't rule on that either. What they ruled on was uh, a relatively limited argument, although, as we'll discuss, it's still a ruling that has some broader significance. And the argument was that in this particular case, in the sequence of events that happened before these particular commissioners in the state of Colorado, that the baker did not have a neutral and unbiased tribunal to hear his claim, and that because the court concluded that there was some evidence of uh, hostility towards his point of view in the uh, administration of his claim, then that was a free exercise violation, but in a very, what one would call an as-applied problem, a very limited problem to the facts of this particular case. Amy, what was your reaction? Um, So, uh, not entirely surprised. Um, I uh, sort of anticipated that the court might choose to rule on the narrowest possible grounds, and as Tobias has described, this was indeed a very narrow ruling. Uh, But, as he also suggested, the case leaves open a good number of the um, most difficult and um, important issues, and the court is likely to see those uh, in the very near future. So, in fact, there's a case from Washington State involving a florist who raised claims very similar to the claims that the baker raised. She, too, did not want to be contributing her goods and services to a same-sex wedding. And um, she has filed a petition for certiorari before the Supreme Court, so she's asking the court to hear an appeal from the Washington State Court's decision. Um, And the Supreme Court has not yet decided whether it will hear her case 
but whatever it decides on that front, it's, again, very likely to confront a case of this kind in the near future. So, Tobias, you, you, you expect that we're going to be discussing cases similar to this involving the Supreme Court in the months to come? Well, the court itself invited further exploration of those broader issues in the lower courts, in state courts and lower federal courts. That's right. one of the things Justice Kennedy said in his opinion. And I have to say, uh, I mean, this is an issue that Amy has done a lot of work on, so she may, yep. I'm sure she has some views about it. Uh, while we describe this ruling as narrow in the sense that it was focused on the particular facts of this case, um, it has potentially significant implications in the following sense. We all knew already it was a well-established principle that if you have discrimination or hostility towards a minority group or towards a particular religious group in the administration of government policies, then that raises a constitutional problem. But the question is, how do you prove that? You know, what what events, what evidence, what facts give you a basis for saying that that kind of discrimination or that kind of hostility is present? Right. And in this case, what the Supreme Court pointed to by way of saying that the Colorado tribunals were not sufficiently neutral or, or unbiased is a very, uh, uh, one, one could argue, a, a relatively thin record of of quote-unquote hostility, you know, before the court right. decided the case, if you had showed me what they were going to rely on and said, does this make out a strong case for anti-religious bias, I would have been very skeptical. And so I think one of the things we may be talking about going forward in relation to this ruling is what impact it has on the evidentiary standards that you have to satisfy when you're making a claim of bias in the administration of laws before things like state commissions and tribunals. Amy? I think that's exactly right. Um, so there are two respects in which one might be skeptical that there was, in fact, bias that infected the outcome here. Um, one is the uh, statements that um, Justice Kennedy quotes from the commissioners that he claims demonstrate a kind of hostility toward religion. Um, and it's not clear on their face that that's what they mean, but um, at any event, the um, Colorado Court of Appeals had to review the uh, decisions below on what's called the de novo basis. So basically, um, not uh, according any amount of deference to what the commission had done, and instead deciding entirely on um, its own lights. That is, the Court of Appeals had to um, review the decision as if it were encountering all of the elements for the very first time. And it found that uh, the baker was not within his rights to turn the gay couple away. So, and, and there was no suggestion in the majority opinion in, uh, that the Supreme Court issued yesterday that um, uh, um, the, uh, right, so the, um, put this another way, I'm sorry. No uh, the Colorado Court of Appeals um, effectively ruled that uh, the baker um, was not permitted to discriminate, and um, uh, there is no suggestion that the Colorado Court of Appeals acted with any hostility toward religion. Right, and, and, and Justice Ginsburg, who uh, was in the dissent, uh, basically said that those uh, that this part of the issue, uh, those comments were, quote-unquote, stray remarks, correct? 
I think that's right. And they might even have been read in a way that's sympathetic toward religion. So the um, comment that seems to be garnering the most attention is a comment um, pointing to the fact that religion has in the past been used as a tool to promulgate um, animus. Uh, But if anything, one might see in that comment um, a condemnation not of religion, but of the misuse of religion. So in a way, one could see the commissioner as um, endorsing the view that uh, it's a dishonor to religion when religion is used in the service of discrimination. We are joined on the phone by Amy Seppenwall uh, and Tobias Barrington-Wolf, Amy of the uh, Wharton School, Tobias of the University of Pennsylvania Law School. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. I I guess, Tobias, and with the history of Justice Kennedy, uh, he is uh, somebody that obviously has been uh, a, a protector of free speech but also a a supporter of gay rights. And I would imagine that this is the type of case that presenting both of those issues here, uh, that this this probably was a challenging case for for him and probably some of the other justices on the court. Yeah, I think that's probably right. And uh, I've discussed on your program before, I was the lead counsel in another case that some of your listeners may be familiar with that raised some of these issues, a case coming out of New Mexico, from several years ago involving um, a wedding photography company that refused to do business with a lesbian couple. And one of the things that I learned in in being a lawyer on that case is that this is an issue that people have pretty sort of visceral reactions to one way or the other. And the way that I have always thought it makes sense to look at this, and there are some indications of this in Justice Kennedy's opinion, is that when you're a business and you're offering goods and services to the general public, you're not engaged in your own act of expression. Customers are not paying for the privilege of letting you express yourself. Right. You're selling your skills. You're selling your artistic and creative skills. And people are paying you because you're very skillful. But they're not paying you for the privilege of having you engage in your own expression. And either people see the case that way or people look at the case and say, well, the baker, the florist, the wedding photographer – they're creating right. a product that has our artistry attached to it, so surely they must be able to turn away whoever they want to. And the problem is that if you, if you think about the case that way, the implications are incredibly broad. Yep. And it's, it's difficult to imagine what limiting principle there would be for businesses being able to simply say, we're going to turn away any customers, Jewish customers, uh, unmarried women, Uh, Latino customers, if we decide that we have expressive or religious objections to providing them with goods and services. And there is some indication in in some of the early passages of the opinion of Justice Kennedy sort of wrestling with those ideas and recognizing that there are some important equality principles here. And there are also important principles that are important to the business owners involved. But if you try to translate those into a workable First Amendment doctrine, it suddenly becomes very difficult to know where you're going to draw the line. A- a- Amy, I mean, just listening to that distinction that, that Tobias laid out, I-, I sit here and say, that's an incredibly you know, a hard line to be able to try and differentiate, you know, which actually does carry the, the weight of, of the argument there. 
Um, I think you're right that the distinctions here are more subtle and more difficult to grasp than we might have thought um, initially. So um, I want to allow that whatever the baker is producing might not have the kind of expressive content that um, a poem would have or a portrait of the couple would have, and yet at the same time to recognize that there is something expressive in any good or service. So if I'm an African-American baker, for example, and a member of the KKK walks into my store and wants a completely generic cake for the annual banquet that the KKK is going to be holding, I think that I have a reason not to want to supply that cake. And again, it's not because of anything that the cake in its own right is going to express, but instead it's about what I'm going to be expressing and having provided the cake, namely that I don't think that this event is um, so worthy of my opposition that I should forego the sale. Um, I should forego the transaction. And um, again, I think that uh, many people of conscience would have good reason not to want to be um, fostering or otherwise contributing to an event that they oppose. Um, Then the question becomes, well, which events should uh, the government um, treat with sympathy, right? So in which of these cases of opposition should the government say, um, look, we see that you oppose the event, we're not going to compel you to provide the good or service. Or on the other hand, we see that you oppose the event, but unfortunately the marketplace is a place that has to be open to virtually all comers and you don't get to enact your opposition by refusing to supply the good or service. Um, And in my own work, I try to um, articulate a distinction that would allow for some refusals of goods or services where the um, good or service is sought for a project that promotes hate. So the KKK is emblematic here. Um, Also emblematic here are um, a series of cases coming out of Colorado that the Supreme Court um, invoked in its masterpiece opinion um, by the Supreme Court's lights. Uh, these cases involve um, uh, um, the commission in what the Supreme Court thought to be disparate treatment. So uh, the cases in question had a religious customer entering three different bakeries and asking for cakes that would contain anti-gay messages. And in all three cases, the bakeries refused to provide the cakes. And they didn't do so because they were discriminating against the customer on the basis of its religion. They did so because they, I think, rightfully recognized that the cakes were um, were offensive. Um, And I think that that's a really um, reasonable ground um, upon which to distinguish what these three bakeries were up to relative to what Jack Phillips was up to. Well, right? So the, these bakers didn't want to be um, contributing to hateful projects. That wasn't what Jack Phillips wanted to refrain from doing. Um, he uh, didn't want to be contributing to a project that, if anything, was a celebration of love. Yeah, and, and that's that, that becomes, as I'm sitting here listening to it, Amy, I mean, an incredibly hard line, I think, to be able to to distinguish from. So, I, I mean, this seemingly is an area that I think is going to continue to have quite a bit of conversation and, and obviously legal discussion uh, in the months and years to come, because, it, because as you said, you're, you're laying out a very much a, a fine line here. I think that's right. I think that the Colorado Commission has it within its power to... Um, uh, nonetheless insist on the distinction, and it can do so in the following way. 
the commission's job is to ensure that there isn't discrimination in the marketplace. Right. Um, where a vendor would turn someone away because they're involved in a discriminatory project, um, the Colorado Commission could say something like, look, what this vendor is doing is at least consistent with the spirit of the law that we're trying to enforce. Right. So we don't allow um, business owners to discriminate uh, on the basis of protected characteristics when a customer enters a store and they want to be discriminating on the basis of protected characteristics. Right. So they want a cake that um, condemns homosexuality or uh, a cake that celebrates the KKK's activities. Um, We see that as continuous with the mission. We see, sorry, the refusal to supply those goods or services is continuous with the mission that right. the commission is empowered to undertake. The, it yeah, is, I, yeah, go so, ahead, Tobias. I just also want to add that um, it would be a mistake to think that these questions are somehow brand new or distinct right. to this particular setting, right? right. So, yep. Um, discrimination, anti-discrimination laws wind up being hard to apply on the facts sometimes. And, for example, the, the, the idea of somebody who's in the KKK coming to a baker and saying, bake me, you know, I want to buy one of your cakes for this rally that we're having. Um, a baker is not allowed to turn that customer away because he's a white person. That's discrimination based on race. But the law doesn't say you're not allowed to draw distinctions based upon political activity, or at least there's very few laws that, that try to say that. And that's because we as a society have decided that there are some forms of discrimination that there's a clear consensus about within a community and that we think at least can administer, right? We can actually draw these workable distinctions. And on the facts, these cases are hard sometimes, but that's true kind of across the board when you're talking about uh, the administration of anti-discrimination laws. And so they are tough questions. And these cases have brought a, a renewed focus on the fact that these are sometimes hard cases on the facts. But it would be a mistake to think that, that therefore, what that means is that we just have to have these sort of broad uh, exemptions that allow businesses to turn away whoever they want to, because how can we draw these distinctions? These are the kinds of distinctions that we've always had to try to draw in administering these really important laws. And, and that was going to be part of my next question, Tobias, is that is this ruling seemingly opening that up for businesses to be able to to turn away people on the rights of of religious uh, religious belief well so far no i mean this ruling so far doesn't say anything about a right that businesses have under the constitution to turn customers away right what this ruling says is that where there's a dispute about whether a business has improperly turned a customer away they need to have a neutral and unbiased tribunal decide that yep. question. Now, the, the cases that uh, Amy mentioned that were also part of the record in Colorado, these were what are often described as uh, tester cases, right? A guy went into a bakery for the purpose of seeing whether he would get served or not, right. not because he actually wanted a cake. And, you know, whether one is sympathetic to this particular person or not, that's a practice that we have used for a long time to see how anti-discrimination laws are working. And... You know, is it difficult to draw the distinction between a policy that says we don't make disparaging or hateful messages on any of our products and therefore we're going to apply that across the board versus a policy that says 
we'll make wedding cakes that will celebrate your your marriage and celebrate your relationship, but we'll only make them for some customers and not others because right. we have views about who should get married and who doesn't. I don't think that's such a difficult distinction to draw. And, you know, I think that the Colorado courts didn't have any problem seeing that distinction. And, and Justice Kagan, in a separate concurring opinion, made the point that on the record in this case, that's actually a relatively clear distinction. So this will continue to be, do you believe, a question that will continue to be asked at the state level uh, more and more, correct? Well, yes, for the very practical reason that when it comes to public accommodation laws, when it comes to laws that address discrimination in the commercial marketplace, Federal law actually winds up playing a relatively limited role Mm -hmm. in that respect. Federal law is very important in the workplace. It's a federal uh, public accommodation statute. There is a a federal public accommodation statute. It's much more limited. And so it winds up being state and local laws that do a lot of the work, especially when it comes to LGBT discrimination, uh, where there's no public accommodations protection in, in federal law at all. Amy, you mentioned the case uh, potentially in, in Washington State with the florist. Is the expectation that we will see that in front of the Supreme Court at some point, uh, if not this uh, session, then the next session? We really don't know at this point. So uh, the Supreme Court has to decide whether it wants to take up yep. the appeal. And um, the uh, uh, petition for the appeal was filed last summer. Um, the case was initially scheduled for a conference among the justices in December, but I don't think they addressed it then, and presumably they didn't because they were waiting to see how Masterpiece would come out. Um, now that Masterpiece has been decided on such narrow grounds, such that it doesn't resolve the issues in the florist's case, it's entirely possible that the Supreme Court will think, well, we really didn't get the bite at the apple that we wanted with Masterpiece, and so we should take up uh, the florist's case, or instead it might decide that it's going to wait and see whether um, some other case with a different fact pattern um, emerges instead, or you know, allow more time for different states to decide how they want to approach these issues. It is interesting sitting back and and seeing how this decision played out, Amy. And obviously, it, it, this uh, this story got a lot of play a couple of years ago uh, when this all happened. Uh, and then we've seen other instances where people's religious beliefs uh, are are very much a point of, of contention uh, and end up being, uh, in this case and in many others, uh, end up being a point that is brought forth into the courts. I think that's right. Uh, the um, some of this has to do with the um, rapid change in cultural attitudes toward same-sex marriage and right. a sense among some religious minorities that they feel beleaguered, and for that reason, um, they're adopting new strategies to uh, seek to press their interests uh, in not having to. Um, support or um, act in ways that they would deem to be supportive of same-sex marriage. Um, But, you know, some of these strategies seek to extend the law or understanding of constitutional rights in really unprecedented ways, in ways that we might think um, uh, troubling in some instances. Tobias, your thoughts? Um, We are certainly going to see 
uh, a continuing debate on these cultural questions. And if I may, we've, we've talked a lot about this issue of religious, anti-religious bias that the court found in this case, and Amy described the passage. I just want to very quickly read the passage that was so upsetting to the court. Um, one of the commissioners in the hearing of the Masterpiece Cake Shop case uh, said the following. Uh, the commissioner said, I would also like to reiterate what we said in the hearing or the last meeting. Freedom of religion and religion has been used to justify all kinds of discrimination throughout history, whether it be slavery, whether it be the Holocaust, whether it be, I mean, we, we can list hundreds of situations where freedom of religion has been used to justify discrimination. And to me, it's one of the most despicable pieces of rhetoric that people can use to, to use their religion to hurt others. That's the passage. Yeah. Now, I think that there are legitimate questions to ask about whether that kind of editorializing is an appropriate thing for a judge or a quasi-judicial hearing officer to do, expressing a view about what, the, you know, what, what it means to use religious belief as a way of justifying discriminatory policies. Um, but the idea that that passage exhibited hostility towards religion or bias against uh, Mr. Phillips because of his religious belief, as opposed to simply a sort of editorial disagreement with his position, uh, is much tougher case to make. And part of the debate that I think we're going to be having is what is it that we mean by bias in these matters, as opposed to simply disagreement? And and that is one of the questions that I think this opinion uh, uh, this opinion raises a lot of new questions on that score. Tobias and Amy, as always, great to have your insight. Thank you both, and we will no doubt talk to you again very soon. Thank you both. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Tobias Barrington-Wolf of uh, the University of Pennsylvania Law School, Amy Seppenwall from here at the Wharton School, Assistant Professor of Legal Studies and Business Ethics. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.